call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 86 of Call It Friend, or the podcast where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Rich, and my co-host, Danica Tiernan, watched two films featuring actor Richard Farnsworth. 1999's The Straight Story and 1984's The Natural. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call It Friend or Podcast. Drop us a line there for any feedback or recommendations. Peace. We are live, and we watched and two films this week. Yeah, yeah, some more, but we'll talk about them next week. This wasn't the first time you watched The Straight Story, was it? It was not, yeah, so we decided to go for, well, you selected The Straight Story, and maybe you thought I was going to partner up with some uh, piece of uh, David Lynch's filmography, but instead no, I but went you decided to, to be a up with The Star. Yeah, no, it's fine, a Richard Farnsworth <laughs> I don't know. I, I think uh, Richard Farnsworth was a much bigger part of the natural than I expected. Well, and you know what I'll say as well. Um, having I, you had seen the straight story beforehand, mm-hmm. so obviously you had kind of been mesmerized by Richard Farnsworth before I had been. Um, spoilers: I thought uh, he was amazing, and I thought the the straight story was fucking phenomenal. Uh, but uh, yeah, to be honest, it's a. I'm glad you made the the connection because um, you know, as David Lynch says himself, I think he calls it his most experimental film, and it is not like any David. In most ways, it's not like any David Lynch film you'd see. There are a couple of ways where it is very clearly a David Lynch movie, I would say. But in terms of the logic the story follows, I think it's almost completely unique in his filmography, except maybe something like The Elephant Man. I haven't seen The Elephant Man for such a long time. Well, the point is, I suppose, it it just follows a regular reality story. I mean, the straight story does even more so than that. Um, I, yeah, as I've already said, I was blown away by the straight story. I will watch this a good few times more in my life, I would say. I thought it was excellent. Um, I, it, it moved me in... I don't know, just the approach that they took to the telling of the story. Um, like how, first of all, when you're an old person, everything is an action movie. <laughs> That's why they show literally everything that happens in the story. But second of all, that it, like, I mean, first I got to feel super smart because I noticed mo- motifs and how like, you know, machines are our tools, but we're totally different from those. And machines have a job to do, but, I don't know, humans, emotional beings just have something to do. And what what might have seemed the oddest thing in the world to do in the modern world on an emotional on an emotional level was the only thing to do in Alvin's situation. And I found that so moving every time throughout the film that I was confronted by that idea. I found it incredibly moving. Cried multiple times. Soundtrack, cinematography, performances. I loved it. I think I saw this when I originally came out. I think I might have seen it in the cinema because I was watching everything back then in the cinema. And the one difference from when I saw, well, there's a couple of big differences from when I saw it uh, compared to now. When I first saw it, uh, Richard Farnsworth was still alive. 
because mm. I remember his death really standing out and the circumstances around it. It was, I don't know if it was shocking per se, but it was like a notable thing where you're like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, do you, well, I mean, we can talk about that a little bit when we get to him as a person, but mm-hmm. go on. Yeah, the second thing is just age. I think you've touched on it a little bit, but when I first saw it, I was probably about 18, 19. And I enjoy, mm. I definitely remember enjoying it, but I feel like now... Now that I'm now that I'm closer to the to Alvin's age, I definitely feel like it, I can resonate more strongly with it. And also, I even I guess in the intervening period, like I've traveled around the U.S. myself. I've been to both Iowa and Wisconsin, so like I've seen some of this type of land. And I don't know, I found it a lot more moving than I did the first time I watched it. Yeah, um, for like so. Of course, this is I think the only. Um, David Lynch film where he had no part in the screenplay, um, which but, is interesting because his approach to it as a story that almost tells itself, he kind of lets it tell itself. Do you know what I mean? Although like, it was it was co-written by Mary Sweeney. That's right, his longtime collaborator. So um, there are definite, like, I felt there were real Lynchian elements just in the kind of the weird, weird Midwest characters, like the lady who's driving along and keeps hitting deer. That's the most Lynchian moment in the movie. Yeah, she's like, that's... "Where do these deer keep coming from?" <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That, that, that's, that is, uh, that is, um, I don't know, like a she's full on twin, twi- peaks, twi- 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 a Twin Peaks straight story Christmas special collaboration yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, to be honest, I would say it's probably the even though it. It fits, do you know what? It fits in exactly the way that all David um, Lynch's films resonate. If you spend time traveling around America, you know that it's in the smallest places where you see sort of the maddest, odd things. Yeah, And that's one of the reasons why David Lynch's films, particularly about small-town America, resonate so much. And um, yeah, that resonated in that way, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's just, I mean, when Lynch talked about the story, he said when he read the screenplay, it affected him, and Mm. he just wanted to bring that to screen. And he did, like, very effectively. He's quite restrained. The only real Lynchian moments, apart from, like, Dear Lady, which is obviously in the script, but feels influenced by him, is, like, the The use of the sky. Sky and slow push in, like, kind of dolly shots with the camera that early on near the start of the film feels really creepy because you're like, is this Twin Peaks or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just sort the, of creeping around the outside of Alvin's house. Well, no, there's a couple of moments, particularly in terms of Twin Peaks. Um, there are a couple of moments that feel very Lynchian when he's buying um, the uh, picker-upper thing in the hardware sh- <laughs> store and everybody just exchanges the same stream of dialogue three or four times, and then they eventually do a bargain. That's very Twin Peaks. That one but feels he, almost Fargo or something. It feels quite cozy. Yeah, quite, yeah, 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 I would agree. But when he's f- uh, passing over the river in the end, and the music goes, this is death, we're doing a metaphor. <laughs> uh, that's quite Twin Peaksy as well. And plus... Um, the very casting of uh, Harry Dean Staunton is something in itself, I would say. My, I mean, yeah, Lynch is obviously a big fan. Yeah, and like for such a tiny part in the film, um, it just yeah, you um, the and another connection that would come. I this obviously came out many years after the fact, but 
another Harry Dean Stanton film. I feel like this It's film, Stanton, by the way. <laughs> Stanton, sorry. I apologize You're making for everyone more listening. And to, and to Andy. Steve um, Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, Har- Steve Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, red lorry, yellow lorry. Uh, no, I feel it's... This shares a lot of DNA with um, Paris, Texas. Um, landscapes, soundtrack. Harry like, Dean Stanton. F- family. Harry, ha- Harry Dean Stanton, yeah, for sure. Um, and with the Fast and the Furious by default because of family, you know. Right, uh, and also high-speed uh, vehicles. Yeah, high-speed vehicles, exactly. Yeah, there was that one scene where Alvin's going flying down that hill. That was dangerous. It was, and that is quite a nice little uh, sort of screenplay moment, is the fact that they're simulating a fire. In the meantime, this old geezer is almost killing himself by the hill. The way that shot does look like the fastest that anyone has ever gone down a hill ever. Yeah, yeah, they did a really good job with it. Um, I think they also did a really good job with um, locations in general. Like, well, all when, of it's filmed on the it's on it's filmed on the same roads that the real Alvin Strait went down. Wow, yeah, that makes sense. And, and all like, shot in uh, chronological order. Yeah, I knew that. Um, all the people who he meets along the way, like they're as much a part of the narrative as anything. It's kind of about how people are nice. It's about family and connections. It's about, I don't know, what makes us human, um, while at the same time just being about getting old. I found his remarks about getting old to the cyclists guys were just just, just so frank and excellent. Um, and also, like, Alvin just seems to be Richard Farnsworth. If you Pretty learn much. anything about Richard Farnsworth, just a grumpy old man who was not taking help or sympathy from anyone. It, they seem to live similar lives in some respects. They both served in the Second World War. Richard Farnsworth never talked about his his Second scene World in the War film. experiences. Yeah, he said about that scene that he was basically like he wasn't really acting. He, I mean, the, he said the script was solid, but apart from that, he was just remembering. Best that's scene in where the film. He gets very teary eyed. Incredible. Um, yeah, because that, like, I suppose in that moment he sort of reunites with a. A different kind of family member. Like, I was full-on crying watching that because, like, from the first guy's story and to the second guy's story, um, I have, like, looked a lot, like, I've I've uh, looked at a lot of documentaries about Second World War guys, not just the opening and closing of episodes of Band, and Bro- Band of Brothers. And um, it's, uh, for for a war that's touted, like, so heroically, people often forget about the horrors of it. And I felt just that scene in the bar where that one guy drinks beer and he drinks milk just really kind of, I don't know, boiled down to its, to its essence everything I've seen on the subject. Really. that I, I genuinely thought that scene was incredible. But then he goes and has a beer later on, so we know that he's back to normal. He's cured. <laughs> That's right. He's yeah, lost yeah. his, the, the uh, effects of PTSD have worn off. And yeah. Now he's normal again. Just now he's he normal. Why, why don't you have a beer, Richard Farnsworth? <laughs> why don't you fucking have a beer, Alvin? Yeah. Shall we get um, a quick uh, synopsis? Do it. Go for it. Yeah, so the story follows Alvin Strait, an elderly gentleman, in poor health and unable to walk without the aid of crutches, living in Iowa with his middle-aged daughter, Rose. She uh, she seems to be doing like a kind of like Jimmy from South Park. Like, wow, what a great audience very much. Yes, but I thought she was good, to be honest. I, I thought she was good in the role. 
Okay, Danica. Okay, is that bad? I think. Uh, yeah. I, I, she, she, are you still allowed to play that character? No, not anymore. Certainly okay. not. But then well, again, Brad, uh, Brad, Pitt, Brad Pitt couldn't do what he did in Snatch anymore. Oh, is that against? The, you're not allowed to do that. I, th- I th- personally, I thought that one was okay. I thought well, they it ra- might, it they might be in, to me. They might be in there with uh, Italians as the last batch. <laughs> yes, they might be. I, Ital- but I wouldn't Italians risk it. The end. I wouldn't risk my acting career on it. Go on. Yeah. So one day Alvin receives word that his estranged brother Lyle, who lives in Wisconsin, has suffered a stroke. Alvin is compelled to go and visit his brother, despite the fact that they live 240 miles apart and that Alvin could no longer drive due to his health. As a solution, Alvin jumps on his trusty lawnmower and starts his journey, pulling a trailer behind him which doubles as a bed. After a few setbacks, including needing to buy a new tractor after he breaks down and gets a, gets a lift back, meeting some, uh, some Lynchian Midwest characters and witnessing some strange, beautiful and heartwarming events, Alvin finally reaches his ailing brother, allowing them to reconcile in the the most stoic way imaginable of like, all right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Did you, you drove here in a lawnmower? Yes. Just to see me? Go up to the, then pan up to the stars, the end. And that's your movie, folks. Yeah, I, I, I can't stress how moving I found this, this film. It, it really blew, and it, it was in a case of, uh, I don't think I quite, got what was happening or was able to put my finger on quite was ha- what was happening until halfway through um and i think it was only when he was buying the second more that he had to go back to that i realized there was so much of a motif going on with mechanical stuff and i just think what's interesting about the story is everybody's going to him what you're fucking driving all the way to see your brother and it's basically like he's in such a situation that it's the only way he can go to see his brother if that makes any sense, if he had a different personality, he'd be able to ask somebody, but he sure. doesn't. So he's just like, no, nah, I just, I gotta do this myself. Uh, so he goes and does it. But, like, he just has to. He has don't to see go. It and- is that bad. I don't know if you, I don't know if he's painted. He's definitely stubborn. He's hugely stubborn. Hmm. Doesn't seem like he's a dickhead. No, no, I did. well, I didn't say that. He's I don't stoic think. and so I don't know, but you're pain, painting him as like, Arr. but I don't. Uh. He doesn't seem. He seems. I was surprised how sensitive he seems the whole time. His uh, yeah. Everyone in this film, like their eyes, really pop. Especially him. He's got like this kind of glassy-eyed look throughout the entire uh, film. But sure, now is the time to actually, I suppose, spill the beans on what uh, Richard Farnsworth would have been going through at the time. So yeah, he was suffering from bone cancer. He had terminal cancer, so even at the the point of filming, he was in horrible pain. He needed those crutches to walk to get around. The entire filming process was apparently uh, incredibly painful for him. Film came out at the end of 1999, and less than a year later, he uh, committed suicide. Yeah, due to to the to the pain of the treatment or whatever, um, and he had lost his wife. Uh, yeah, he like- was a. Uh, Ten oh, year widower, about fifteen, uh, yeah, about fifteen years before, and I, like had a few kids, but um, yeah, uh, and of course, some like it, <laughs> a Norm Macdonald obsessive such as myself picks up the the clues along the way that Norm Macdonald himself was actually dying from cancer, but uh, one of the most evident alongside um, his well, actually, there's the the way he talked about uh, Tig Watserface. Tig Mataro. Um, 
Tignataro and um, her stance in the comedy community as brave and directly compared her to somebody like Richard Farnsworth, um, which was such a bizarre take um, on the situation. But you listen back to it now, it's and alongside all his comedy about dying of cancer, it's um, you know it's obvious that uh, Norm Macdonald took inspiration from you know the the way Richard Farnsworth and in turn I suppose Alvin and Lyle approached their own demises, uh, and so it had an extra effect on me for that. But generally speaking, I just thought I don't know. Like how many everyday seeming people are in this really made there are too many dramatic actors would have maybe made this story feel as weighty as it actually is. But just how much life is going on in it and him passing through life just kind of, I don't know, you got the feeling of death like it actually is like an everyday thing. I thought that was really great and special. There's a, I mean, there's elements of this that feel like people living lives of quiet desperation. I don't know. There's a, I, I, I guess there's like a beauty to that, to people yes. living around where they grew up or and just all these kind of seemingly not that important events, but they're kind of the reality of what make family life. I mean, I'm like the exact opposite of that. <laughs> you kind <laughs> of are, yeah. Traveling by myself in other countries for long periods of time. So like, but I mean, that's how most people live and that's what their life is. And it's not like a celebration of I'm super important. Well, they are. They're important within their own little world, but that's what exactly. life should be, I think. So that's Like fine. when Alvin collapses at the start and you get to watch the series of banal events that kind of collapse around his just not being there and a whole troop of three people drive out to the house to see why, why the hell isn't Alvin at the bar? Like, it kind of makes me sad. There's something sad about it of that small town life at the same time. I, I, I you see... I think it's, I think it's, I think it's good and bad in equal measure. I think so many films would paint it as bad, but I think it, I I I think this film is successful in sort of painting it as as kind of beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scenes between the guy and his wife when she's just doing the dishes, I, it reminded me of um, the writer almost, just how naturalistic and just yeah. real everything seemed and genuine. There's a scene where like. The the most heightened scene in the film is probably when um, he gives the pregnant girl the metaphor about family. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite pointed. But that is there to, I don't know, show you what the film is, is really about, like the importance of human connection. And then the in a bizarre twist, um, Chris Farley's twin brother, uh, d- d- you must have discovered that on your travels, did you? Well, it, it was supposed to be Chris Farley. He was going to be in it, but he yeah, died yeah. in 97. But yeah, two of his brothers, John and Kevin, play the twin mechanics. Yeah, and um, just the speech that Alvin delivers to the, to them and kind of pointing out to you. the most important person in the world. But I mean, I mean, like he says brother, but I suppose it's what it's really meaning is like family is like, you know, the, you know, the person who you formed your personality around, basically. I mean, you have brothers and sisters. You're as much raised by your brothers and sisters as your parents, I think. That's generally agreed upon. Um, If you're not the oldest, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but, like, you raise each other as well. I mean, if your brother is, like, young also, 
like uh, within a year or two, you know, you you also raise him in an odd way, and I I think it conveys like it almost paints it paints for you in black and white what your gut feeling probably told you the reason he was going for was anyway. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like that little scene is very much. You know, it's like a Shakespeare play. It's like, oh, there's these twin bickering brothers, but he's going to say, oh, I missed my brother or whatever, and he goes on his way. But you knew that was the reason he was traveling. You knew why he had to travel, and you knew that this was the only way he could do it. It's like, that's what's so just fucking beautiful about the story is just it's this really, really weird thing to do. But when you connect with the film on an emotional level, you realize that he didn't really have a choice. He was like, no, I, that's what he had to do, so he's doing it. He's not He's not the kind of person, he's like, he's not you know, a big Williamsburg hipster going, I'm going to travel all the way. <laughs> Watch my journey. You can follow me online. Exactly. Luckily, this is all pre-social media where the internet was really nothing. You know, uh, Werner Herzog did a thing like this in his young life also. He had a, a lady who was... I'm going to look it up right now. Hold on. I'm going to visit her on a lawnmower. I will be traveling to the Amazon rainforest on my lawnmower. Yeah, so he, um, basically, a mentor and close friend of his, um, a, a German film historian called Lotte Eisner. She was ill and dying. And basically, he received a call from this, and he said, he basically... His feeling was, I'm going to walk from Munich to Paris, and that's going to keep her alive. And uh, he like he would say that it did. And it was in the middle of winter. It was very, very cold. Um, and he just did it because he's a Werner Herzog mad bastard. He did this in 1978. So he had already braved uh, Aguirre, the wrath of God, and was facing into the storm of um, Fitzcarraldo. But yeah, yeah, like, he, he, I feel it's a similar kind of pilgrimage. It's um, although Alvin would have had no such uh, Herzogian superstitions, I'm sure. No, Alvin had a close relationship with his brothers Simon and Theodore. Oh, really? Oh, so this is real, Alvin? <laughs> oh my God! I didn't. <laughs> You're taking advantage of me being so emotional by making Sorry. a chipmunks reference. <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> I apologize for exploiting your. Uh... Yes, did you did you get emotionally invested in this film? I know you've seen it before. No, definitely. I mean, I knew what was going to happen. The guy gets on the lawnmower and he rides to his brother. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, like I said, I find it a lot more moving this time than I did previously, just because of having lived more life. I think it's just something that pro. I imagine the same again if you watched it in twenty years, despite the fact that you would have been dead for fifteen years. But let's imagine if you watch it in twenty years then uh, I'm sure you'd feel even more strongly. The How difficult it is, like, how much stuff happens in the film. It's an action film, like, all is lost, but with even less happening, because it's just, like, the things he has to do. Every time he has to get off the lawnmower, it's a chore, like, and they show it, I think, with yeah, good reason. Yeah, actual physical pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I actually <laughs> think that's a bit cruel. Do you think you think David Lynch might have rushed in helpers to help him off? Yeah, yeah. I think we should cancel the straight story. I wrote, I wrote um, when he arrives in, uh, he's getting near Lyle's house in the end, and it's in the woods. I wrote, Jesus, this is, was my actual note, Jesus, this is like Steinbach or something, That's or something, that's how jaded I am. But I mean, it is, it's like, it, it, it arrives into a 
you know, Robert Frost poem at the end and uh then I thought, Oh my god, this is gonna this is gonna be so poetic. His lawnmower is breaking down, but then uh, uh and he's gonna out. have to walk like cool runnings. This is so cool, but then some guy <laughs> helps him and ruins my illusion. Whatever. Wisconsin's um, got a bobsleigh team. Yeah, yeah. It's like country music, the musical. <laughs> yes. Uh, the music, though. What about that? That's a. I was kind of surprised by that. It feels very different from when I think of Angelo Badalamente. Mm. I think of first of all the Twin Peaks, of course, like Laura's theme and uh, and the other one. <laughs> I think of that kind of repeating again and again and again. But this is a, this is a really light touch on this one. It's country. It's nice. It's, I like it. I really, I really liked it. I'm gonna. I couldn't seek find a, sco- a score album on um, on Spotify. It's not on the old Spotify's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going but, to um, recreate it in 8-bit. Do it, please. Mm-hmm. So, both big fans of the Stray Story. I'm glad. Yeah, would you like to hear about a couple of cast members? Three, yes, please. Well, we got old Richie Farnsworth, born on, the, yeah. born on September the 1st, 1920, in a little town called Los Angeles, Los Angeles, California. He left school at 15 during the Great Depression and worked as a stable boy at a polo barn where many actors played in their leisure time. And this got him involved in in Hollywood. He became a stuntman. He started his career as a stuntman in 1937 and appeared in films such as Gone with the Wind and The Grapes of Wrath before serving in World War II. As we touched on earlier, he never talked about his service record. Uh, He was, I guess, he's one of of those guys. He's like, I don't want to talk about it because it's not fun. Mm. Uh, Later in his career, Farnsworth started getting more substantial roles in films, culminating in an Academy Award Best Supporting Actor nomination for his performance as Dodger in Alan Pakula's 1978 film Comes a Horseman, ultimately losing to Christopher Walken for... The Deer Hunter? Correct. The Straight Story was Farnsworth's second nomination, this time for Best Actor. He lost to gay pedophile... Tom Hanks? <laughs> Not a, a wrong one. <laughs> uh, Brian Singer? No, but yeah, this actor was in a very prominent role in Brian Singer's second film. Kevin Spacey? That is correct. For? Uh, what did Kevin Spacey win an Oscar for? Oh, sure. In, yeah, of course. American yeah. Beauty. American Body. Yes, indeed. Mm. So yeah, Farnsworth was married to his wife, Margaret Hill, from 1947 till her death in 1985. They had two children. After Farnsworth was diagnosed with terminal cancer, the widower chose to blow his brains out with a shotgun rather than being a burden on his adult children. Respect to a real one, to a, a real G. They don't make him like that anymore. A real G. I mean, that is... It's hardcore. Yeah, it is. All right, who else you got? <laughs> old Sissy SpaceX. SpaceX. Oh, old, sis- old Scissors. Yep, a Texan native after her older brother Robbie died at 18 years of age in 1967 from leukemia during her senior year in high school. She decided life was way too short to waste on college. Uh, She initially aspired to a singing career and under the name Rainbow, that's like the word rainbow but without a W at the end, she recorded a 1968 single called John You Went Too Far This Time the lyrics of which chided John Lennon for his and Yoko Ono's nude album cover for Two Virgins. <laughs> She's a, con- a conservative Texan. When a music Respect. career failed to materialize, her first cousin, Rip Torn, pulled some oh. strings to get her into the Lee Strasberg Actor Studio. Nice. 
A year before her breakthrough role in Terrence Malick's Badlands, excellent. SpaceX uh, SpaceX's first credited role was in Prime Cut in 1972. Oh, that's not a nice movie. Have you ever seen that movie? Uh, I just got hold of a copy. I flicked through it. Had a flick through. That's an extremely not nice movie. Uh, this is the one with Gene Hackman, right? Yeah, oh, no, Gene Hackman's not, a bad Gene Hackman it's, got, it's got Lee Marvin, Gene Hackman. It's directed by my dad, Michael Ritchie, who we've talked about before. Yeah. Because he it, directed... What was the one with Robert Redford that we watched? Where he's a politician... Uh, the candidate. Oh yeah, the, the, the candidate. The candidate. candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, around yeah. the same time as the candidate, directed by Michael Ritchie as well. My dad. Yeah. And yeah, and in this, she played Poppy, a girl sold into sexual slavery. Oh, that's right. And the, but there's so much about this. I'm looking at the Wikipedia now. I'm not just working from my memory, but uh, it's immediately jogging my memory. There's so there's just motif after motif of this of. Um, Meat being cut up, and then there's yeah. a very disturbing scene where, um, yeah, well, there's a gang rape. I remember as I it, like, you know, it cuts away from it. But I remember I saw this when I was very young, uh, too young, uh, probably to be honest. And then I remember years later, I heard um, Mark Marin bring it up on one of his podcasts. I was like, oh, that'll look interesting. So I downloaded it, and then within the first 20 minutes, I was like, oh my god, I remember I saw this, and it was not nice. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Sissy Spacek went on to an Academy Award nomination for Carrie, her first of yeah, six. incredible. Including one win. So apart from Carrie, can you name the others that she was nominated for? Oh, good god. Can you name any of these? One is a win, and four nominations. A win? One is a biopic. Of a country star, I believe. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Coal Miner's Daughter. Yep. One of them is, uh, has also got Jack Lemmon set in uh, Chile. Oh, right. Uh, is it, it's not, um, is it Salvador? No, it's not the Oliver Stone one. It's, what's his name? Costas uh, Gravis or whatever he's called. Yeah, I know the one you're talking about, but I, the name of it is not... Striking me now. Um, yeah, so 1982's Missing. Missing. That's it. That's it. The next um, the next two, I'm guessing you probably oh, don't know. Oh, I know one. 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 The guy who doesn't direct very often. In the Bedroom. She's in the, She got nominated for In the Bedroom, right? Yeah, that's right. And another one in 1984. No, there's no way. I, <laughs> no, my sissy's basic knowledge only runs so deep. Do you have it? 1984, she was nominated for The River. Never even heard of it. 1986, Crimes of the Heart. I haven't heard of that either. Yeah, I feel like some of these have kind of been forgotten a little bit. My favorite yeah. uh, work of hers from recent years, I think I mentioned it before, was her performance as Ruth Deaver in the Stephen King-inspired Castle Rock series. No, you have not mentioned that. Is that series good? I only watched the first season. The first season's good. She, there was like a big Emmy nominated episode, which is all about, she's kind of going senile and there's this episode that kind of shows that, uh, kind of jumps in between different time periods and stuff like that. And she's excellent in it. So it's a great episode and the same character in the same episode or episodes is, are also played by her daughter, Skylar Fisk. Pretty cool. Good name change. Skylar Fisk. <laughs> yeah, her, her dad is Wilson Fisk. Oh, right. Okay, that's fair enough. The Marvel character, the Kingpin. Yes, that's right. Right. 
Um, you Last had one, one more to one throw more person. Me? Yeah, I got one more person. Old Harry Dean Steve Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, yeah. What a man. During World War II, Stanton served in the United States Navy, including a stint as a cook aboard the USS LST-970, a tank landing ship, during the Battle of Okinawa. Whoa. Har- that's, that's hardcore. Yep. He That's saw being some dive bombed, uh, and it, that was that was the first uh, battle to feature kamikaze bo- uh, bombers. So, like, even counting ammunition wouldn't have done. They were still like, these motherfuckers are crazy. They're literally flying their planes into the deck. That was the first um, first battle where that made an appearance. I listened to Dan Carlin's hardcore history. What can I tell you, Andy? Fair play. Stanton was also the best man at Jack Nicholson's wedding in 1962 when he married Sandra Knight. It's the only time Nicholson was ever married. That's right, he was just a man about town after that. And Harry Dean Stanton appeared in three films that were nominated for Best Picture. Any ideas? That's a tough oh. one. Do I know any of these movies? Uh, 1962. It's got the word West in the title. I mean, it's not the How the West Was Won, is it? Mm-hmm. He was in How the West Was Won? He was indeed. Okay, but I don't know he the other the ones, the role of I? the West. Well, 1974's one is uh, is a sequel. It's not The Two Jakes, is it? No, it's much better than that. I haven't seen that. Have you seen The Two Jakes? No, but this film is definitely better than that. Oh, right. It's a sequel, but it's one of the most oh, famous sequels yeah, of all time. of course. And I know who he is in it and everything. He's in The Godfather Part 2. That is correct. And what's the year of the other and one? And the last one is 1999, set in a prison. Featuring someone that you labeled as a gay pedophile earlier. Set in a prison with Tom and, Hanks. Uh, and we've also referenced the, I've already referenced the author. Yes, that's right. Uh, the in green, the last the, the, 10 the, minutes. The Green Mile, one of my least favorite adaptations of anything ever. I'm not a fan of that yeah, you've, film. You've, you mentioned that before. What's the, what was the deal with it? What was the problem? It's, it's Frank Darabont. How can you not like it? It's too, You're wrong. It's too close to the source material. And I just want, like, I had... Um, recently read The Green Mile and um, I was just disappointed by how little they changed. It was the first time I realized that that's something I actually wanted. I wanted something different from the book because the book is a long one, but my God, it's forensic in the detail it picks up on that adaptation. And I realized, okay, I want a different angle if I, if I uh, watch an adaptation of something I've read. That's why I don't like the uh, Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> I wanted it to be 30 minutes long. And you also probably didn't want uh, Morgan Freeman's character to be uh, black. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. He's called Red because he is actually Irish. He's Irish. <laughs> He's got ginger hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But instead, Frank Darabont made a cruel joke and changed the only the only ginger character in the in the film is yeah. a famous rapist. Well, that's that's how <laughs> That's that's how we know he's Irish because he's a rapist and he's in prison. Perhaps the most famous prison rapist on screen, I would say. Uh, this, the, what is, he, is he not? Can you? Well, wait. That's a good point. They re they changed the character of Red and were like, "All right, we're going to." I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll assign how it is set out in the in the novel. We're going to assign that instead to a rapist. That's pretty hardcore. That's a pretty hardcore change to make. <laughs> That's essentially what happened there. They're like, give me a ginger. I, I give all shout out to uh, the uh, Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption. I think that I think that's one of, I think it might be the only film that regularly features in top tens of all time lists that really nobody can argue with. Like I would probably <laughs> argue that 
objectively for it wouldn't be my number one but like the godfather would probably be my be my argument but like you know i could show the godfather to my wife for example and she'd probably get bored but i don't th- i think the shawshank redemption sucks everybody in i think it's that good and i think the main thing the main reason for that is they made irish guys black and ginger guys rapists i think that's <laughs> that's what won uh, the hearts and minds now, Donica didn't agree with the casting choices, <laughs> but he had to agree the film was good. I like to think Andy held out against Donica well, that... for that entire night. <laughs> <laughs> I think that brings us to the end of the straight story, because it's, we're, we're losing the straight story. Yeah, yeah, right it's here. getting less straight as it's, we go. It's dissipating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, before we kick so I off... I think we should get a bit natural now. Before we go all natural, oh yeah, before we can, yeah, before that, I, yeah, yeah, um, I would just like to because I think they're a very interesting beast. Uh, I'd like to talk about favorite sports films. Um, now, I how many did you get? How many did you choose? I pick, like I could probably narrow. Uh, you see, I picked three categories, and I could f- pick my favorite in each three. If we're not counting documentary, but then I can pick favorite documentary and favorite fictional. Okay, I picked a top five, choosing they, my only rule where they must be different sports. I'm not allowed to repeat the sport. And I included oh. one documentary, and it's the same as yours, maybe. Or maybe not. Uh, did you include series in yours? No, I'm not, because that's cheating to put the, uh, like, that Chicago Bullsy one. Well, yeah, that that was definitely on my list. But I did include yeah, it. I, I did include it as a caveat. It's I, not film. I did include it as a caveat. Yes, okay. So, I first of all, I want to lay down the three categories. See, do you agree with them? Um, okay. So, first of all, there is there are films that are directly they are featuring the sport and kind of about the sport. Um, the other ones, the second category is yeah, the sport is front and center, but let's be real, this is about something else. And then the third is ones that kind of marry those two worlds and manage to pull off that great trick. Incidentally, I think the natural is one of those. Um, I think it's both about the sport and about something else. Would you agree with those as categories? Yeah, that makes sense. I think they I even count like... for documentaries. I think you can think of examples in each category for even documentaries. Go on. Yeah, no, I was going to say I think I think that makes sense. I was just I felt like uh, the second and third categories seem quite similar there. Right? No, you're saying the third one is it like it marries everything together? No, it's like uh, coinciding Venn diagrams. Oh, okay, okay. Um, which, like, let, let, let me, like, I'll, I'll lead off and let me think. Yeah, well, just you go with yours. Okay, so films that I feel really dig into the sporting world and are kind of almost peerless in this department and then one that, you know, you could say is a bit ridiculous, but I, I would think, no, this is about what it's about. Um, You can mine them and find other themes in the middle of them, but superficially i think these two and these three are very much exploring the worlds that they're set in so i have any given sunday i think that is very much about the world of professional sport and professional football um i think the wrestler i you know you can find other themes in that but that is about professional wrestling and what the guys do and in a roundabout move i've put escape to victory because I think Escape to Victory kind of, like, you know, the war is going on, but is that film a war movie? Is it fuck? That's a football movie. That's a big show, Bodhi football movie. It's almost professional wrestling with football at it. 
the one thing I'd say about Escape to Victory is I think football, aka soccer, is almost unfilmable. Yes. I don't think you can replicate that. I just I this is, we're talking about the uh natural shortly, but I think baseball is like a filmic sport. Perfect for I it. think it's easy to it's perfect for filming. It's the it, the way that you can you can break the action so easily. So because that's is, how baseball works. But this is one of the reasons any given Sunday works so well is because there's so much backroom antics and the backroom antics are very much right. filmable. Like they're like my favorite moment in any given Sunday and most memorable one I think um isn't any of the football scenes. It's when Cameron um, Diaz goes, fucking two hands, you stupid showboat. Because she's being a stupid, you know, girl character, but at the same time, she's into the sport, and I just think that that really works. My other one, so I've got some other ones. Um, maybe it's a cheat, um, but I have Jerry Maguire. Uh, it seem, it's explicitly exploring, not directly sport, but I think sports representation. Yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly the big, like, American draft system and the, the big money aspects of sport, definitely. So then I have two, um, well, no, I have three boxing movies, but if I had to pick one. But the thing about boxing movies is they're all clearly about something else. This isn't one that I've included on my list, but there's a line that makes me laugh every time if I'm rewatching uh, David O. Russell's film, The Fighter, which is mm. one of the final corner talks. Christian Bale leans into Mark Wahlberg and says, hey, take all that negative stuff that's been happening in your life and bring it into the center of the ring, which is what all boxing movies are about. <laughs> is that? <laughs> I thought it was so funny. So I have, like, you know, Rocky, uh, the first one in one sense, and the franchise in another, Raging Bull, and Shane Meadows' uh, second film, uh, 24-7. Uh, I think the latter two I've named sort of lean heavily into the grit of boxing scenes, but you could, you know, they're about something else, like Raging Bull is famously about cocaine. If I was to pick out of those three, I would probably pick Rocky 1. I, I think that, like, it's just a story of Sly Stallone wanting to stand out but stay true to his roots. I think Adrienne represents those roots. And I like I actually rewatched Rocky last weekend. You know, rewatching it as not a child, you know, for the first half of the film I'm going, God, I never realized that Rocky is retarded. Rocky's a retarded man. <laughs> I never had actually He's not retarded, he's just from Philadelphia. I had never but no no, there's that one scene, you know, at the end of him and Adrian's de- uh, date where they're around in the apartment, she's like, Sit down, it's a nice couch. It's like he lives like a homeless man and he won't let her leave. It's crazy. But then at the end, <laughs> it was, it's a 1970s. But then, for as cliched as it is, him yelling out "Adrian" really, really made me cry. And that film is um, not about boxing, not even a little bit. And then the other films are just basically about they're it, like crushing the Soviet Union. Well, it follows a very similar trajectory to the Rambo series, let's say. Yes. Um, yeah, I'll wind down very quickly now, but I think the films that combine uh, the two worlds, without mentioning any documentaries, staying true to it. Um, I would say my favorite um, sports movie of all time is probably it's and I like I said I do think the natural exists in this world but my favorite is actually probably Moneyball. I'm a huge Moneyball fan. I've seen it many times. I think it is very much about baseball, but I think it has lessons for your life. That movie I really get a lot out of Moneyball. Um, and I've heard some people call it boring, and I I I think it is boring. I think that's almost kind of what's so good about it you got to lean into and you have to learn the lessons of the characters while they're going on i think it's absolutely great for that that would probably be my number one 
with a little side shout out in the same realm to Friday Night Lights, which I enjoy quite a bit as well. What do you got? Well, oh, first of all, give me a comment I, on Moneyball. Do you like Moneyball? Well, here's here's the thing. I selected five different sports. My sports are. Let's see if you can guess why any of these are. Right, I'll, I'll give you the sports. Okay. Well, so we, I'll I'll give you the five sports, and then we can go. Well, you tell me what any of them you think they are. Okay. Baseball, golf, boxing, basketball, and wrestling. Okay, so you've got the wrestler for sure. Yeah. I was thinking of so I'll just talk about it very quickly just to say that, like, I mean, is wrestling a sport? Is it sports entertainment? That was back when Darren Aronofsky was, like, untouchable, at least to me. Like, yes. I'd stack his first five was. films against anyone. You've got Pi, Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, The Wrestler, Black Swan. I haven't seen Noah. I despised Mother. I think we both did. Uh, I hear mixed things about the whale. But anyway, I mean, this film you've got Mickey Rourke because he's just I think it's his best film. Down. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the most accessible, good film of his, I would say. Um, but yeah, I think it captures like a sporting career on the downslide, drugs, violence, and the possible demise, inevitable demise, maybe, but. Well, if you know uh, anything yeah. about the private lives of professional wrestlers, it's a pretty good reflection of the way things tend to turn out for those boys. Like, really, it's not a, you know, the shining lights are few and far between. Anybody, like, so many people, uh, like, if you watched wrestling in the 1990s, and if you, like, you just have to read, like, the likes of um, Hitman, uh, Bret Hart's uh, autobiography to learn, like, the nasty fates that befell so many of those uh, fellas. Anyway, um... <laughs> R.I.P. British Bulldog and Owen Hart. Um, <laughs> they're all they're all dead. No, Roddy, uh, Roddy, Roddy well, Piper. Let me. So baseball is is Moneyball also, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that would be my number one of the five. That was the first one I put down. Yeah, yeah. Um. Oh, yeah, I love that film. I Good. just think it's like I said before. Baseball. Uh, uh, some film. Some sports are filmable, and others it's more of a challenge, or it's not even possible. I think baseball's all of my top, if I had to choose one sport as like my top sport for sports films, it would definitely be baseball, like things like Field of Dreams. Um, but yeah, Moneyball is definitely number one for me. Okay. Uh, you had golf. So you still have golf, boxing, and basketball. Did you put Happy Gilmore for golf? I, I mean, it's maybe, it's more in the category of like golf is something that's kind of happening because I mean, it's also ice hockey. But, you know, Happy Gilmore is cool. It might be the film I've watched the most times in my life. It is, I remember well, I mean, seeing it, the trailer it for it in classic. the cinema. It is hilarious. I'm I, I remember seeing a trailer for it and I was like, I know I'm going to like that. You know when you see a trailer and I was like, I know I'm going to like that film. I was a teenager at the time. Yeah. And it it never let me down, and it's never let me down. No, I don't think it could since. let you down. I, I like, I mean, yeah, it was exactly what I wanted from a film. I still look forward to all the jokes. I watched it uh, during lockdown, yeah. and then I made uh, my wife watch it a couple of days later. Uh, she wasn't even my wife at the time, but I was just like, if you've never seen Happy Gilmore, you got to watch this. And we laughed our asses <laughs> off. And yeah, actually, like a total nerd, I paused it before the. Um, Bob Barker scene just explained to her to her his standing in American culture. The price is wrong, bitch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely terrific stuff. Um, okay, boxing. Did you? You've already mentioned it. Uh, Rocky. No. Oh, Raging Bull. Yeah. Do you fuck my wife? I think I've only seen it. Yes, I did. I think (laughs) I've only seen it twice. By like, it's another one that's seared into my brain. But I don't think I really want to revisit it. 
Well, I actually have revisited Raging Bull a lot of times. It goes to show that, yeah, you and I have different trigger warnings when it comes to things. I don't think I could even think about revisiting Requiem for a Dream again. And I know you. Oh, that didn't, that didn't bother me. Yeah, I know you've watched like that loads times. of times, and I know, like, I've met other I don't people. Want to see a guy get punched? Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, Raging Bull is at its. I'll tell you what. If Raging Bull uh, ended three quarters of the way through, I think it'd be a fine movie. <laughs> like, but it's that last part where he just. Winter, you don't like winter. Voluntarily leans in and tears himself apart. That's the whole point of the movie, really. You know. It's and it's, well, tough. I mean, it's, it's based on this the Hubert Selby Jr. novel. I was a big fan of Hubert Selby Jr. back in the day. I haven't uh, I haven't gone back to any of those novels, but yeah, they're dark. They're dark, dark, dark. No, 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 no. Uh, we, we, one... I think we switched be, uh, Hubert Selby Jr. Did he write Raging Bull? No, no, right. I thought we were talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's what I yeah, yeah exactly. I, I think yeah, we switched yeah, yeah. positions there. At this uh, like uh, you said, winter, which confused me a little bit. Now I realize what's go- what was going on. Oh, oh wait, were you talking? I was still about talking Raging about Bull. Raging I you were talking about record yeah, for a dream. Well, I mean, All right, turns mind. out they have actually similar <laughs> things going on for them. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it's a different kind of thing yeah, that that uh, downfall. It's a downfall. Yeah, yeah. Um and uh, what's well then in 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 real life in real life he ended up living as like Stanhope's name. That's right, yeah, yeah. Features in um, yeah. Uh, don't tell me, don't tell me. Beer hall putch. He's uh the opening bit yeah. of beer hall putch. Um, okay. So you what what what's your last uh, sport? Basketball and it's a documentary. And I think without uh, it, there would be no. Chicago Bulls, uh, whatever that was called, the Michael the last None dance, of those 30 the last dance type things. Um, yeah, there would be no last dance without this. So you're talking, of course, about Hoop Dreams. I am, yeah, the 1994 documentary, uh, the the boyhood of basketball following... Yeah, yeah, uh, it's an incredible young, documentary. guys hoping to break into the NBA. Uh, apparently there is that other um, documentary, Landsman or something, that like sticks that close into people's lives. So you find like even the most domestic uh, situations engrossing, but like I don't know, my I haven't watched Hoop Dreams in years, but my abiding memory of it is uh, w- there's this one part where one of the kids is trying to practice and he's embarrassed because his crackhead father keeps wandering on, basically trying to leech money off the film yeah. off the off the film crew, and it's just it's like The Office, but actually sad, like so sad. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's an incredible film. Um, fair play. I'm gonna list out quickly before we get on to the natural because I would want to talk loads about that too. Um, just the sports documentaries that I would hardly recommend. You can give me a one word or a known if uh, you would uh, agree with me. Uh, so, have you actually watched The Last Dance? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, other one I have to recommend will be The Kings, which is um follows through the eighties the boxing careers of Sugar Ray Leonard, Tommy Hearns, Marvin Hagler, and Roberto Duran. Um, that's really, really something. It's only a four-parter. I would really recommend that. Um, a duo of Muhammad Ali documentaries, uh, When We Were Kings and Thriller in Manila. That's all you need to know, really. And uh, the Asif Kapadia uh, documentaries about... Was Senna. Senna and um, Diego. With- Amy. Amy Winehouse. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. She was a real trooper. Sport, <laughs> sport of... Uh- competitive drinking yes indeed but uh i don't i think like those are they're the documentary version of something like rocky that is no it's not really interested in the sports it's interested in the psychology and they're very very good for that um 
the other one I would throw in is the OJ Simpson. Oh yeah, of course. Reason. Jesus Christ. Okay, which is yeah, that is something else. That's one of my favorite things I've ever watched. Yeah, yeah, it's I've watched it twice through and it's quite long, but it's so mm-hmm. like do you know do you, right. You know what's one of the most engrossing things about it like as you're watching it as a big film fan, you're kind of th- like I'm thinking about it almost the same way when I was watching the Metallica documentary, uh, some kind of monster that was supposed to be just a making of, of one of the albums and all this, the band started breaking up and you started finding out stuff about AA and just like the domineering psychology of one guy. And you're just thinking, God, I can't believe all of this happened for the filmmakers. When you're watching the OJ doc, like as a film fan, you're just going, I, you're just thinking, I can't believe such a perfect metaphor was a real thing that was happening. Like, it's incredible to think about, like, how many poetic strains there are in that story. Anyway, you want to talk about The Natural? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was my second time watching it. I selected it by, again, I think this is the first week where I'd seen both of the films before. Obviously, I chose one of them, but I really wanted to revisit The Natural because it's a film that I hadn't seen again for, like, I hadn't seen it for a long, long time, maybe 20 years. Mm. And mm, it didn't me it didn't match up to my memory of it and uh Interesting. i didn't enjoy it as much as i thought i was going to but i think it might be down to the version that i watched exact did opposite which happened version did you watch i don't know i had a high definition version no but there's a director's cut and a theatrical the cut that i watched was an hour 24 minutes long <laughs> that doesn't exist director's cut no 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 no, sorry, two hours, 24 minutes long. What am I talking about? Two hours, 24 minutes. Two hours, 24, I think, is... Director's Cut. Yeah, I think that's Yeah, I think that's a director's cut. Is that the one you watched? I th- yeah, I watched it, but I, I f- like apparently there's only six minutes difference between the two cuts, and the director's cut, apparently the first act is slightly recut. Some of the events don't happen in the, in the same order. It's like, it's like, it's slightly different. Anyway, I found it, to be not how I remembered it, which I'm not sure if that's how did you just remember it? Memory over a period of time, better. Can you get can you get more specific <laughs> than that? Like that it moved you more? I f- I, 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 yeah, I just I, f- I felt like the first act had more weight to it the way I remembered it, or there was more going. Like uh, maybe it's always been this way, but like the things that happened to Michael Madsen's when Michael Madsen's character died. That's bizarre. I guess that's that. I guess that's always been like that, but it never bothered me the first time I watched it. Yeah, but this yeah. time I was like, "What the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, that, is, that? That is bizarre." He's with like I mean, it, it looks like he walks through a paper wall, like when the Simpsons <laughs> visit Tokyo. <laughs> But then it does feel, it feels like The Simpsons. It feels like, you know, like Frank, uh, if, it feels like Frank Grimes, like, so electrocuting himself. I, I remember this being more pants than um, I thought this time around. Not exactly, probably not exactly pants, but there's a part at the beginning that stuck in my craw. And obviously I wasn't as into Wikipediaing things when I saw it first. And maybe Wikipedia didn't exist. But I always thought that him getting shot was just a bizarre thing to happen. And then all the years in his career missing and then him trying to make a comeback. And then I find out that that actually happened. Twice. It happened to two different guys. Just some mad wagon shooting him. Well, there was, there was two guys. There's Eddie Wakekiss and then Billy Jurgis. One was shot by his ex-girlfriend and the other one was shot by just some random fan. So, but yeah, I think the random fan is probably more in tandem w- w- with uh, what they go at in the in the film. But 
so then once I realized that, because I had to watch this in two parts, so my like I um just was getting tired and as I was going to bed, I was reading that and I was like, oh Jesus, that actually happened. And then um, I sat down to sort of watch the rest of it, and I sort of the part where it really clicked with me what I saw as it being about was when he has to go in to the judge's room with the judge wanting him to make the deal, and it's all in the dark. And it's the oh, is that right? <laughs> it's the most height when he like turns on the light. Yeah, yeah. It's the most heightened metaphor in the world, and I, I just kind of it all just clicked into place for me, and I was like, oh yeah, of course, because I've watched Ken Burns's documentary about baseball. Baseball is America, basically, more or less. Like mm. it is ever like that's one of the reasons why people were so pissed off at Billy Bean and the Moneyball story because. The essence of the way you progress in America, it, it, like, is the, a lot of people reckon is reflected in the way a game of baseball runs. I can't get into that exactly because I don't understand it completely, but it is what it is. And then it immediately clicked with me also that it's like, oh, right, yeah, the guy had a Midwest raising, let's say, had his sweetheart, uh, his father dies, a lightning bolt splits a tree. He's got his heritage to live up to. It's the most American thing ever. And then along the way to fame, he gets seduced by some broad who shoots him. But as that is the thing that really happened, and then it's also based on a book, I figured, oh, right. So the author interpreted this almost like C.S. Lewis doing Narnia. It's that puritanical with the way it approaches yeah, life. Yeah, and there's also the... Uh king arthur elements totally but that like i mean that's what it is it's pure it's puritanical storytelling like the mm. hua uh bringing him down and so forth um and the the corruption and all he wants to do is play ball and uh and once that clicked with me maybe it's just because i felt smart or whatever but then i really started to get on board with it i started to enjoy its big moments um i thought it was completely stupid um that he didn't know that she was talking about his son. But, I mean, at the same time, it's that kind of movie. It's a stupid movie, but it's a smart I think, movie. I think the biggest problem for me with the film is, I mean, I, I like Robert Redford as the character, but he's 47. Yes. And early on in the film, he's playing 19. Yes. And for the majority of the film, he's 35. Hey, the coach is Wilford Brimley. What do you think is the age difference? Do you know the age difference between Robert Redford and Wilford Brimley? Oh, he's probably older than him, is he? <laughs> no, but it's two years. <laughs> Wilford Brimley's two years older than Redford. And Wilford Brimley looks like the world's oldest yeah, man. Yeah, he looks like he's lived after it. the thing. It's like three years after the thing, or two years after the thing. But do you know the age difference between Robert Redford and Robert Duvall? No. That's five years. Only five. Wow, they both scrub up well, huh? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Robert Duvall's not going to be playing 19. Yeah, I suppose, I ju like, it's not a real movie. It's existing in no. storyland. Um, Definitely. I read uh, Roger Ebert's review trashing it, and he says it's like uh, idolatry to Robert Redford, which of course it is. Right. But he's the most... But then Sis Cisco gave it four, four stars. That's right, yeah. But he's, like, Robert Redford is the most American fucking thing ever. <laughs> Like, look at him. Jesus Christ. If he yeah, was he any more American, Captain he'd be America. an illustration in Mein Kampf. Whoa, did I just say that? But you know what I mean. Um, yeah, so, like, it makes sense. And I don't think it was a, a Redford vanity project either. I think he was sought after for the role. He'd, he'd also taken a break of, like, three years before this. Yeah. 
I don't know. I like it worked for me in the end. I wouldn't here. You know what? For a film that is two hours, 24 minutes long, I wouldn't shy away from watching it again. I, I think it's enjoyable. I think all the background, I don't think there's a bum note in the cast. I think it's, um, shot well for a period piece. I think the lighting is nice. Even, um, the, like, you know, the costumes, everything, it evokes the period immediately. The, and the themes, man, like <laughs> the guy, like literally, like this is like C.S. Lewis doing America, like how puritanical it is. Like all the women just being the downfall of this one guy, except his. Oh yeah, I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> is except his sweetheart back home, you know, <laughs> who, who arrives. And she is definitely. Yeah, I mean, she is shown to be like the kind of like yeah, mom's apple pie. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, absolute. Yeah, purity. And then the thing is as well, when they're having, where he's having his hospital chit chat with her, with Iris, Glenn Close, um, she, he, he's there going, but yeah, no, I gotta be the best. I gotta be the best. And, uh, she's there going, and then what? And he kind of realizes, oh, it's not about being the best. It's about playing the game. I have to play the game. That's it. Like it's straight up metaphorical stuff about American society. And I thought it was kind of beautiful. It, it, like it, but this, I liked it. This is a, f- this is a film that's loved for the sport, like for baseball. It's loved by the MLB and by baseball players and people. I can that, believe that. Like, affiliated with baseball. And that's what I enjoyed about it. I found the film to be a bit of a slog this time around, but I still love the baseball scenes as cheesy as they are. Like I, I can't get enough of that slow-mo, that oh, final hit yeah. of smashing the floodlights, Redford running through the sparks while you've got like Randy Newman's score, that, that horn, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's just, there's nothing better. And that's how it ends. It ends just with Redford, like, running through Sparks, basically, the band. Yeah. Um, would, would, would you like a synopsis of plot? Yeah, please. Tell me what happens in the natural. Take 144 minutes. I go. will not. Not in a million years, man. So, uh, yeah, this young fellow, Roy Hobbs, is pretty good at baseball. Uh, but before anything happens to him, some things happen to him. He falls in love. And his father dies, and a tree gets struck by lightning, out of which he makes a bat. Do you see him fall in love? Do we see him yeah, fall in totally. love? Yeah, totally. I don't remember yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You do. She. Do I? When? Yeah, yeah. So when he's first practicing his pitches and he breaks in and the chickens peek out of the hole, then this woman calls away. Um, she's like, Iris, dinner. So Iris has to run away. And then uh, after his father dies, he meets her at like midnight in a field and says, Oh, do they shack? That, you know, it's not exactly implied, but it happens. And he says, Yeah, I got to go away. I got called up to play ball. Then. I don't remember that. So, well, it happens. I must have filtered that out this time. <laughs> I was so hyped for the baseball scenes. I just was like, yeah, 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 okay. But this is all I part of the mythos. Me. This is all part of the mythos. Uh, this is basically American Lord of the Rings. <laughs> this is what it is. Um, yeah, so then as a young fella, but clearly an old fella, to be fair, to, to your point, he's an old man. Um, yeah, he's on a train yeah, and uh, he is on a train with uh, a Babe Ruth kind of guy and also with uh, Robert Duval's horrible sports journalist. Ooh, don't like him. What is his motivation? I don't, I think he's one of the poorest aspects of the film. Um he's it's n- he's just a dickhead for seemingly no yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah, he's got I mean, he's got he's like he's I think he could see the future of what was going to happen to journalism and he was already upset about it. He's basically like in one character all the people 
joking around a table about Julia Roberts's character in Notting Hill. He's just a sneery dickhead, <laughs> um, which is a, a tight reference game from Dunnikid just there. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, they do a little bet that uh, the Babe Ruth character known as the Whammer will be able to... Played by Joe Don Baker. That's right. Um, will be able to... Um, Basically, he won't be able to be, get pitched out by this young fella by Hobbs, but uh, Hobbs pitches him out, and then the lady who's formerly on the Whammer's arm is right onto Hobbs's arm. She go, he gets tempted. He gets tempted away from his road, from his golden sweetheart back home. He gets tempted by this road hussy. Goes up to that's how they do. Goes up to her room, and she says to him, "Are you the best?" He's like, "Yeah," and then she shoots him. Oh, and then she kills herself. Oh, then break. Many, many, many moons later, um, Hobbs is signed up to a New York Yankees uh, thing. It's not the New York Yankees. See, that, this, I just want to say that's one problem for me. It's 16 years later. Yeah. But it's like this time around, it bothered me of going like, I can't see any demarcation in the time period because he doesn't. I mean, you know, they're not really doing a lot. I think all they did was take off his makeup. Yeah, <laughs> took movies off the have changed, year old man. Makeup. Yeah, yeah, movie, like I know they would have. He would have. They would. He would look completely different nowadays. They would have done a better job. Yeah, totally. They would have leaned into that, and I'm kind of glad for it that they did not. I got to be honest. Like I like watching Spartacus, where you know Kirk Douglas looks like a man <laughs> who has never been to a gym and smokes twenty a day. Yeah. Um, Respect. Anyway, so yeah, there's the manager, Pop Fisher, is furious that Hobbs has been signed. He's like, why are you giving me this old guy? To be fair, I side with him on this. But um, so he leaves him on the bench for ages. But then eventually he's left with no choice but to leave him up. And it turns out Hobbs is amazing. Hobbs is amazing. But then all this politics emerges that this guy called the judge is going to get the the club practically for nothing if they don't win this season. Who would make that deal, by the way, ever? What a ridiculous deal. But that is a classic. You yeah, know, yeah. Like oh, totally. Against totally. your own team. So you're, that's like it, Ted uh, Lasso. It's basically the same thing. Yeah, but don't. How dare yeah, you? Yeah, he wants the team to lose <laughs> and then he's going to take control. That's it. Um, no, he doesn't. She wants the team to lose. In, oh, because he's. But I thought at some point, doesn't he? Isn't he going to take over? Who Ted Lasso? No, no, no. The guy, the the ex husband, whatever he's called. I can't remember the character. No, names. but the motivation of um. Yeah, she wants it to lose to like piss off yes, her ex husband. Exactly, exactly. But I thought at some point, like he also th- is going to take over. I can't remember. No, 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 no. Because Lasso. he w- he wins a game of darts, Andy. He like. But I'll I'll actually say. Ted Lasso, there we go. That would be oh, like, yeah. that'd be num- num- number one for football for me, no question. Oh, yeah, Ted Lasso is great. Anyway, right. So then uh, the judge and the gambling addict throw this honey, bo- honey pot at Hobbs, and it works. He gets to shagging, but he immediately gets shit at baseball. It's pretty, like this is straight out of Hemingway, fucking uh, The Sun Also Rises, where the young matador gets seduced by American Bush, and all of a sudden he's a shit matador, and then a Jewish boxer beats him up. But anyway, then he's having a real losing streak, and he sees like a in virginal white in the stands, Iris, and uh, all of a sudden he gets a real teenage horn remembers his uh, first taste of snizz and he fucking takes out the lanterns in the stadium for the first time in a mo- in a moment that's become iconic in film history i think it's fair to say that's probably the most yeah. iconic moment in the movie um and then it's a back and forth until the end of the movie will he go iris will he go whore will he go iris will he go whore in a ridiculous twist that's kind of mi- mythological 
the wound in his he's carried a, around a silver bullet still intact in his stomach for 16 years which is fucking insane it's nuts that that made it into like that that should go when is this says it's set in the 1930s i don't know i mean it's basically narnia yeah. yeah nothing is real in this um you know it's all symbolic but yeah he even gets a big ass bribe from the judge just stay down just stay down so i can get the football team but he's like no nah, it's not about you motherfucker it's about playing the game so uh, he goes back he realizes that his son is in the stands and uh, then he um yeah smashes the lanterns one more time and the last we see of him in the movie is he's playing catch with his son in the field Oh, God. The true American dream, as Glenn Close watches. Um, and then in, in the version I saw, actually, Glenn Close um, sleeps with Michael Douglas. <laughs> yeah, that was a little uh, yeah. coda at the end. And there. she gets super jealous. She, and she boils his bunny. She boils his fucking steps. bunny. Anyway, yeah, I think I had a better time with this uh, than you. I would watch this again. This is a great bank holiday uh, Sunday afternoon sort of fair for me as far as I'm concerned. I would just isolate the baseball scenes, and I'm good with that. I'll just I'll do that. Fair. Uh, I don't know anything. I, I I do watch some baseball on YouTube from time to time. There's a great uh, channel, a guy called John Boy, who's like super famous for like explaining what's going on in. Uh, do you ever go to a baseball game? Baseball plays. Yeah, I've been. To, I went to see the um, or the San Francisco Giants the versus Giants, the yeah. Colorado Rockies. Back in 2001, pre-9-11, it was Barry Bonds' um, steroid years. I think he was breaking the uh, home run record that year. One of the things that I, I like about going to baseball games is the commentator knows that loads of people aren't paying attention, so they tell you, they, they say things like, um, looks like something exciting is going to happen here, folks. Maybe put down your beers and hot dogs for two seconds, that kind of thing. I like it. Anyway, yeah. I had a fun week. This was a good week for movies. Let's hope we have a fun week next week. What do you bring into the table? For some reason, I think I started looking at Clint Eastwood's filmography, going through it, going, what have I not seen? And I listed his films by IMDb rating. And one of the highest ones I hadn't seen was 1979's Escape from Alcatraz, the Don Siegel film. You know, I haven't seen that either. Yeah. So I thought, why not? Okay, cool beans. Well, um, I've been listening to an awful lot of horror movie podcasts uh, in the last few months, and one that kept coming up among directors as guests, like, you know, esteemed horror fans, is David Cronenberg's 70s uh, oddball horror movie, The Brood, which uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about. So that's what I'm putting on the table. Solid. All right, cool. So we got a 50, and we have uh, Broccoli. Ah, uh, broccoli. Let's keep it healthy. Good man. The tension is killing me. It's broccoli! Hey. Ah, hell yeah. Okay, why don't you tell me what I, what I might have won? Well, I've got so many Cronenberg holes to fill, and uh, I was going to go for... <laughs> I was going to go for 1988's Dead Ringers. Ah, that's a good movie. Yeah, I watched that earlier this year. It. It looked interesting, but uh, yeah, it's not it's not to be. All right. Well, I went in line with other prison break things, and uh, there was a temptation in me to 
It was going to be The Rock. You were you, at least part of you was thinking The Rock. There was a, well, my first answer in my head was The Rock, but I said no, I'm not doing The Rock. I take pleasure in gutting you, boy. I said that. I said that soon after I thought that. But no, my the my decision for even a few hours was Papillon. No, I was going to go um, the Bridge on the River Kwai. Okay. And I, half of me was going because I've seen I love that movie, but also to go because mm-hmm. it's so fucking long. I just wanted to <laughs> stop you in your tracks. <laughs> but then I actually remembered a prison break film that I've been trying to get watched for a long, long time. And then this is the week. It looks like this is the week. I'm talking about Andrei Kanchalovsky's uh, film based on an idea from Akira Kurosawa, Runaway Train. Yeah, you've you've talked about Runaway Train so much. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I mean, I hope it features Runaway Trains. Apparently, it does. It, I and I hope the train is the size of the Chrysler Building. I hope so too, because all good Runaway Trains are. All right. Do you know what? Do you know what's a strange thing that's after happening to me? What? <laughs> I'm certainly pretty sure I've actually seen this. <laughs> I'm looking at the Wikipedia. More, runaway yeah, train. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now. I think I might have seen this, but it doesn't matter. I can't remember seeing it. I, I think I might have seen it too. I can't remember, but it would have been a million years ago. But I just remember, like in in my Kurosawa deep dive in recent years, I, I was wait, wait, wait. Isn't isn't hasn't Runaway Train got something to do with um, Eddie Bunker? Um, yes. Yeah, he, yeah. He wrote. He, he worked on it after he got out of prison or something. Yes. Or he, no, no, no. He did. Or... He did. He did. Um, but it's based on yeah. uh, an original idea by um, Akira Kurosawa. Mm. All right. Uh, let's leave it at that. Um, yeah. Looking forward to the movies. Uh, to getting. So it's Escape from Alcatraz. Uh, Escape from Malcatraz. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna get into prison and, and then train. get out. But before we get around to that, uh, what? Are we... Oh wait, we still have to. What about next? Yeah, week? what are we watching yeah, for next week? That? Well, I guess we could go for Crimes of the Future then. We've, you've paved the way for that. Yes, we have. As, uh, for any regular listeners, one of the reasons we were trepidatious about that last week is because I don't think we could have faced the idea of two David Cronenbergs yeah, in one we week. Already knew, we already knew our toss picks were for this <laughs> I time. don't think anybody could uh, should force themselves to do that. Spoiler no, also, enemy of the show, John Spallan, found uh, Crimes of the Future to be hard work. And I believe uh, David Cronenberg's son has a new film in the works with Alexander Skarsgård. Maybe it's already out. Brandon Cronenberg. I watched uh, his first film, and that is hard work. I mean, it's so Mm. gory. (laughs) The guy's a Cronenberg. Yeah, 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 this is it. All right. um, First of all, to the listeners, uh, I love you. But second of all, to you, Andy, I love you. All right? Goodbye. (laughs) I love you too. All right. Bye. (laughs) 